Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Different music today, same preacher. So, sorry about that part, but uh, we are in Ruth chapter 2 this morning, and I want to ask you a simple question to start, and I want you to uh, refrain just a moment from answering because I want you to think about it. Is God a good God? Now again, I know you know the Sunday school answer. I know you know the church answer. Because we say it occasionally, God is good all the time. I know that you know the religious and spiritual and biblical answer, and all of those answers are the same. Yes, indeed, God is a good God, especially to those who he has redeemed. But I'm asking the question this morning from a practical standpoint, not a theological one. And what I mean is this, do you still believe that God is a good God when tragedy strikes or the stock market is in chaos? Do you believe God is a good God when your health is failing and your prayers are not being answered? I mean, can't we at least acknowledge that there are times in our lives when we think about the goodness of God and actually come to the wrong conclusion? that God must not be a good God since he allowed blank into my life. Now, granted, we tend to keep those thoughts to ourselves. We don't openly share those, and we often think we're the only one that would dare to think such a thing because, again, we know the right answer. But the fact of the matter is there are times in the vast majority of our lives when we do have those thoughts, is God really good And if so, why? Last week, we talked about Naomi having some serious doubts about her uh, faith in God and the goodness of God. In fact, that's an understatement because she had not abandoned her faith, but she did have serious doubts that perhaps led to much more. After all, she had come to the conclusion that God was not a good God and instead was a God whose hand was against her, who was actively ruining her life, leading to the death of all three men in her life and her disgraceful return to her hometown of Bethlehem. And she is returning, in her words, with nothing. Of course, we know that she's returning with a Moabite woman, But frankly, at this point in the story, she doesn't know if Ruth is an asset to her or an embarrassment. That's another point that we fail to realize because we know that Ruth is a key figure in this story and is what we might call a hero. But Naomi doesn't know that at this point. These two women have no visible means of supporting themselves, no prospects for a home or husband's or food, no prospect for children to carry on their name. They are going to have to rely on someone to help them, to bring them sustenance. They're a charity case, and they don't yet know who that someone is that is going to help them. 
but ultimately their question will center on whether God is going to provide for them. Is God a good God? They're not sure about that just yet. Is he going to meet the needs of his children? They can be excused for doubting with all they've been through. But of course, we're not at the end of the story just yet, but even in chapter 2, things are going to drastically begin to change, especially as we are introduced to a new character. So we are looking at chapter 2 today. I realize that's a, a lot of verses to deal with, but since it's a story, it reads much faster. I'm not going to divide it up as I did last week. I'm going to read all of chapter 2 at the same time, and then we'll come back and look at the pieces here. It is always hard to outline for a sermon a story portion of the Word of God. And so today we're going to look at the three characters, even as we did last week, we're going to look at three characters, the three characters in this story, and those will be our three points as we come to the simple conclusion that we all know already, and that is that God is good. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after which, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Boabite woman who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest." Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young, man, the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from, the, from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young, man's, young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. 
and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not been forsaken, the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of one of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, we are going to start with our main character, and her primary function in this chapter, and that is the gleaning of Ruth. Now, most of us are not farmers, and even if we were, this principle of gleaning would not apply to us because it is specific to Israel. But we are going to see that the principle behind the practice of gleaning certainly still does apply to Christians today. So hang with me as we talk about gleaning because it is going to be applicable. The previous chapter had ended with a ray of hope. These two ladies had arrived back in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. God had visited his people and brought them food once again, but the question still remains, how are these two women going to get that food? How are they going to participate in the harvest? Well, gleaning was the practice of the poor. They would come into the field and pick up the ears of grain that the harvesters had inadvertently dropped to the ground or had left on the stalk. They were also instructed in the law not to harvest to the very edges of the field, but to leave those for the poor. These instructions are given at least three times in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It was God's provision for the foreigner and the poor, the very categories that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it is added that this is because they have been slaves in Egypt. That is, God wanted to remind them of where they had been in the past, and therefore they should care for the poor and needy in the present because they knew what that was like. However, in one sense, it was voluntary because there was no penalty in the law for not allowing this. Now, when I say it was voluntary, I don't want you to be confused. I'm not saying God's commands are voluntary. I'm simply acknowledging that there were some who did not practice this, even though it was commanded, because there was no penalty. So there are certainly times where greed would take over rather than gleaning. So it could be a dangerous proposition. That is, some landowners would not want anyone else in their fields. And it could especially be dangerous for a foreign woman who was by herself. Now, you might ask the question, why wasn't Naomi with her? And I don't have an answer for that. 
I don't know why it was just Ruth going out, but that's what we know took place. And there was a risk here of her being mistreated by not, allow, by not being allowed to glean, or worse, physical or sexual abuse. But our story and narrator makes it very clear that God is working according to his providence behind the scenes. I mean, sometimes it reads like this is all one big coincidence, or this is all one big accident, that she just happened to find herself in the field of a close relative. But we know that God is at work behind the scenes orchestrating all of this so that he could provide for these ladies. You see, there would have been no sign identifying whose farm this was. There would have been no fencing around the fields. It would have simply been one field after another, and it would have been very difficult, if impossible, to tell who belonged to what field. And so she just begins to glean in a specific field that just happens to be the field of a close relative, meaning that this good God is going to provide for her through Boaz. So how does this Old Testament practice of gleaning in the field apply to us, again, since we're not farmers? Well, I would say a couple of things. First of all, I think we need to have eyes to see those who are in need. It is easy to pass by them. It is actually easy to become hardened to their situation, especially given the fact that most of the time their situations are so severe that we don't have the resources to solve their problems. But clearly, God is a God who sees the most vulnerable, both in the Old Testament and the New, and provides for them. But I think one of the clearest points that we can get from this part of the story is that Ruth was not given a handout. She has to work for her food. In fact, in verse 7, it makes it very plain that she worked hard. The, the men tell Boaz that this woman has worked all day long except for a short period of rest. So this was no welfare program where Ruth just sat at home and waited on Boaz's men to deliver the grain. No, throughout the course of this harvest period, which would have lasted up to a couple of months, she was out in the field working every day gathering grain. Now, I'm not trying to make a political or social statement condemning all forms of welfare programs. I realize that there are people who mentally or physically or both simply cannot work. I know there are unique situations and circumstances for which my general statement is not going to apply, but I do want to make very clear the general statement. And the general principle is that God has provided work for our good, even though we count down the days to our retirement. He has given us work as a means of providing for ourselves and for our families. Listen to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he's talking about how they operated when they were with the Thessalonians. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have this right, but to give, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, 
we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul makes it very clear there that those who are able are to work, that God has provided work in order to provide for us. And in doing that, there is some sense of satisfaction and contentment in being able to do that. While we also recognize that our work is just the means by which God provides. And his provision through our work reminds us that he is good. Aaron read us a scripture last week that warned us not to forget God when we build our nice houses and when we have plenty of things and supplies that we not forget God but we are to remember that it is God who gave us the ability to produce and do the things that we do and have because God is a good God and Paul states in Philippians that he is confident that God will supply all of our needs so the practice of gleaning was not for the lazy it was not for the idle It was a social program, if you want to call it that, but it was a social program that allowed the poor and the needy to work so that they could provide for themselves what they needed. Now, you know that these days, virtually everyone or every business is looking to hire somebody. I hear it all the time. We're having to reduce our hours because we can't get enough workers. And therefore, it should be very easy for anybody who is willing and able to work to find a job. Now, I'm sure I've told you this before. At least my wife says I have. She told me not to tell this story, but I didn't listen. When I was in seminary, a buddy buddy and I went to another church that we did not normally go to. don't remember why we did, but we wanted to go to this church for some reason. And so we went one Sunday. I still remember two things about that service. Number one, it turned out to be a King James-only church, and we didn't know that. And neither one of us had a King James version of the Bible that Sunday morning. And during the course of his sermon, the preacher said, if you don't have a King James Bible, you need to throw it out. And so we had to walk out of the church that day with the binders of our Bible turned down and our hand over it so that he would not see that we didn't have King James. And number two, the second thing I remember is he preached on Ruth. And as he was standing at the door, shaking everybody's hands as they went out, he kept repeating the same phrase. He kept saying, she sure did like to glean those fields. Now, as I've studied the book of Ruth a little more, I don't think he was actually right on that. I don't think Ruth was gleaning the fields because she enjoyed it so much. It was work. It was hard work. But she did it because she knew that that's the way God had orchestrated things, that God had set us up so that we are to work while at the same time trusting that God is using our work in order to provide for us. So that's the gleanings of Ruth. The second thing we need to talk about is the new character that has been introduced in this chapter in the very first verse, and that is the person of Boaz. He is going to play a tremendous role in this story moving forward and turns out to be a picture of Christ. And so we're going to look secondly at the kindness of Boaz. Now you already know what that word kindness is, right? Hesed. We've talked about it for the last three weeks. That's the word Hesed. 
It is a complex word that no English word can adequately describe. But it means love, covenant love, loyalty, mercy, grace, compassion, on and on we could go. We are introduced to him when the scriptures tell us he is a worthy man. And that word encompasses not only his character, but also his wealth. And in some settings, military prowess as well, though that doesn't seem to be part of Boaz's life. We also see something of his character when he appears and he greets his workers. The way someone speaks to those under his or her authority says a lot about them. Is he taking advantage of them, wielding his authority over them? Is he exploiting them in some way? Not Boaz. He greets them warmly and they greet him in return. He is serving those who are serving him. And so we're already beginning to get a picture of how Boaz looks like Christ. But of course, the major way we see the kindness of Boaz in this chapter is the way he treats Ruth and by extension, Naomi. He offers her protection, urging her to remain in his field rather than trying to go and find some other field. He instructs his men to deal kindly with her and to not touch her in any way or harm her. He gives her access to the water supply, which was not normal. And he invites her to eat a meal with them. He is, in essence, treating her as a member of his family, not his bride at this point, but a member of his family, all the while making sure she is able to glean more than enough grain. The amount she brings home on that first day is clear evidence that someone has been gracious to her. That one day of gleaning was enough food for her and Naomi for probably several weeks. So why would Boaz demonstrate such kindness to Ruth and by extension Naomi? That's the very question Ruth is asking. In verse 10, she says, I'm a foreign woman. Why have you noticed me and shown this graciousness to me? I am not worthy of such favor. And the answer Boaz gives is that he has been made aware of Ruth's hesed, Ruth's kindness to Naomi, And he is now paying that back in essence. He is showing her kindness because she has shown kindness as well. You reap what you sow is the biblical principle. And that does not just apply to farming. Ruth is reaping the kindness of Boaz because she has shown kindness to Naomi. But we might need to dig just a little deeper here and see if there's more going on than one man being kind to one woman. And to dig a little deeper, verse 20 is the pivotal verse, though it is a bit difficult. The question there is this, whose kindness is Naomi talking about? Because grammatically, it can refer to either Boaz or God. I tend to think it's the the hesed of God, the kindness of God, but the kindness of God is being actively worked out through the kindness of God. Boaz. Again, this is a recurring theme in this book. God is demonstrating his goodness through the provisions and protection of Boaz to Ruth and Naomi. And as we're going to see in a moment, Naomi is starting to see this. I also like the way Boaz pictures this in verse 12. He describes Ruth as having taken shelter under the wings of God. She has come to the Almighty for refuge and he is providing for her. It reminds me of Jesus' statement as he looked over the city of Jerusalem. 
longing to gather the people, but in that case, they were too stubborn and rebellious to see their need, but not so for Ruth. She has made her tremendous spiritual commitment in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2, she is finding her refuge in God. And what she finds is that God is a good God who provides for his children. Ruth now has abundant evidence of that kindness through Boaz. But what about Naomi? Remember we said Naomi last week? We painted a very bleak picture of her. She had not renounced her faith, but she had seriously doubt, doubts, had serious doubts about the goodness of God. Has any of that changed in chapter 2? Well, let's turn our attention to her. So from the gleanings of Ruth to the kindness of Boaz, we look thirdly at the faith of Naomi. Again, we gave her a hard time last week, but that's not for me to blame. That's her fault. I mean, she's the one that had turned against God. She is the one who wanted to change her name and call herself Mara, which means bitter. But at least she recognized her own bitterness, something a lot of people don't. We probably wouldn't be wrong to go further and say that she might have even been in despair or what we might call today depression because she has long since forgotten about the goodness of God. But the question in chapter 2 is, is any of that beginning to change? She has seen Ruth come home after day one of gleaning with far more than she could have ever done. She has heard about the promise of protection and provision for the future from Boaz. She has heard about the promise of not just the food for today, but food for tomorrow. She has even received the doggy bag that Ruth has brought home from her gleaning at lunch, and Naomi has enjoyed that. The provisions are certainly abundant. It's probably a little difficult for us to understand how significant this is. After all, when it comes to food, most of us are worried about overeating. Most of us think at times, you know, I need to go on a diet. I need to lose a few pounds. We don't think often about going hungry. We don't know what it's like to go days without ample provisions. In fact, we are satisfied with food so often that we grumble and complain about that, right? Ah, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that much. I feel awful now. Ruth and Naomi don't have that problem. And so their excitement and their contentment, their satisfaction at having a full belly is something, for us, something hard for us to understand. They were satisfied. And in, that, and in that satisfaction, they saw the provision of God. Remember that verse we looked at a little closer a couple of moments ago, verse 20? That was spoken by Naomi. And if our interpretation is correct, that is, it refers to the kindness of God as that kindness is worked out through the kindness of Boaz. So in essence, it refers to the kindness of both God and Boaz. But what does Naomi mean when she says that the kindness of God to both the living and the dead? It means that she is recognizing that God has provided the food for them, and she's hinting that God just might provide much more in the future. That's the only thing she can mean when she says God has not forsaken the living and the dead, because she realized that Boaz was a relative, or more importantly, a redeemer. We've already sung about that, right? We've already sung this morning about what a joy it is 
that we have been redeemed. And of course, I've told you already that this idea of a kinsman redeemer is important to this story. Those, those two words, said, covenant love, and kinsman redeemer are the key to this whole book of Ruth. The word talks about a relative who has certain responsibilities when another relative is in need. Scripture details multiple things that a redeemer, a relative, a kinsman redeemer was responsible for. For example, if you became poor and had to sell your land, then your kinsman redeemer would step in and purchase the land on your behalf because God had given them the land. God did not want the land to go out of the family, family's hand. So the relative would redeem or buy back the land. The same would be true for someone who had to sell themselves into slavery. They had become so poor that they not only sold their land, but they sold themselves. And so the kinsman redeemer would step in and buy back the individual, purchasing them their freedom. Another role of the redeemer is something our government handles today. And that is if your relative was murdered, you would be responsible to pursue the, the murderer and bring justice by tracking them down. Similarly, they would also receive restitution in the form of payment for a crime committed with the deceased victim and ensure that justice was served in a lawsuit. But the role that's important for the book of Ruth of the kinsman redeemer is the responsibility to marry the widow and provide a son to carry on the family name. This would, of course, first fall to the brother. The brother would be the closest relative. And so the brother of the deceased was to marry his widow, and the first son that was born was to be a son for the dead brother to carry on his name and, of course, his inheritance. It wasn't just the land that was important. It was the family name as well. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to, we're going to see that Boaz is confronted with this. He is not the closest relative, but he is a relative. So will someone else take the role of the kinsman redeemer, or will that fall to Boaz? If it does fall to Boaz, will he fulfill it or forsake his responsibility? Again, I know we know the answers already, but we don't want to miss the fact that there, there is high stakes here and high drama because we already know the ending. God has shown his goodness to Ruth and Naomi in providing for them, but they still don't have any land. They still don't have any husbands. They don't have any children or an heir, and so they are still dependent upon charity. And the last verse of this chapter gives us foreshadowing. You remember that from your English class? Our narrator is very good at that. There is still a problem that needs to be resolved. The last sentence says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. You say, well, why is that a problem? Isn't that what she committed to do? Where you lodge, I will lodge. That's what she said in chapter one. And that is true, but that does not negate the fact that she wants a husband and ultimately children. You see, the extended families live together. So when she says, I'm gonna live with you, it doesn't mean I'm forsaking a husband. And so our narrator is giving us a clue here at the end of the chapter that there, there is still a problem to be resolved, and that problem is actually greater than food. There is of yet no husband, no redeemer, at least not in her story. But that cannot be said of us. We do have and know our redeemer. Our closest relative has rescued us 
As I said, Boaz is going to become clearer and clearer as a picture of Christ. Just as he will rescue and redeem Ruth, so Jesus has done the same for those who have put their trust in what he has accomplished. And that brings us back to the initial question. Is God a good God? And if our answer is yes, how do we know that? Do we look at our circumstances and form a conclusion? Do we compare ourselves with others? What we have or don't have versus what others have? Or do we say instead that God has declared his said? his covenant loyalty to his people, and that is a promise that he is then working for our good. It may not always look like that, but he is always working for our good. Likewise, we can look to the cross and see the sacrifice that was made there to redeem us from our sin. And therefore, we can come to the conclusion that Scripture gives us He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And knowing that, our response ought to be a lot like Ruth's. Now, Ruth is bowing before Boaz, but we're bowing before God. She is filled with gratitude and awe at such outstanding and undeserved love. And that is always the right response to grace. When we embrace and understand the grace of God in redeeming us, the right response is always gratitude. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. Forgive us for the times when we look at our circumstances in our life and we begin to question that. Maybe even begin to deny that. And remind us again of this simple yet profound truth that you are a good God who not only redeems his children, but provides every other need we need as well. And for that we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.